Hey, I'm so glad you're watching, whether it's Sunday morning or Sunday night. Thank you for tuning into this broadcast from First Baptist Church in Rock Hill. I'm Pastor Steve Hogg. Today, we're starting a new teaching series that I think you're going to find very, very interesting. As I mentioned earlier today, we're starting a new series on the Reformation and looking forward to what God's going to teach us and do among us in these days. Back in February, I was on a study retreat during the, the week at uh, North Myrtle Beach and I was eating lunch and I had a book with me on, on Protestantism and I was reading it. And I, I've learned over the years, by the way, that if you take certain books with you, Christian books and stuff to lunch and you have them on the table and you're reading them, sometimes people will ask you about it and it's a good conversation starter. And that's what happened that day. I was reading this book, preparing for this teaching series and uh, my waiter was a, a young man. He asked me what I was reading. I told him. And he said, uh, Protestants and Catholics, uh, they don't like each other, do they? And he and I, for the next few moments, had a conversation about that and, and, and other, other issues. And um, the truth is, this month, across not only this country but uh, throughout the world, many are commemorating, celebrating, thinking about the Protestant Reformation. And when you think about Reformation, Reform, Protestant, uh, protest, Going back 500 years ago to the 1500s when, when uh, the, the church, particularly in Europe, was all under one umbrella for the most part, the Roman Catholic Church. And, and the Protestant Reformation was a movement that uh, brought into being other expressions of the Christian faith. And out of that came Baptists, and Presbyterians, and Methodists, and many, many others. And here's the thing. There's no way to talk about the Protestant Reformation and, and what it meant in that time and what it means for us today without talking about Catholics and Protestants where we agree and where we where we differ on some things and the truth is there have been moments in history when there was some strong animosity between the two groups and people did things that were just horrible and sinful and and uh, wrong today you'll find a few people who still have those kind of feelings but not most we've come a long way since the uh, the middle ages the Catholic Church in many ways has changed a lot from what it was in the Middle Ages. And yet there are differences, and we're going to talk about those. I titled this series, The Reformation, a movement that shaped our world. Because here, here's, here's the point. See, it's, it's not just about studying what happened then. What I really want us to understand is that so much of our world, so much of our life, so much of how, of how we go about things, has been shaped by what happened 500 years ago, and often we don't know it. And because of that, we, we, we sometimes take for granted some of the blessings we have. Sometimes we abuse some of the blessings we have. And, and remembering what was and how it's made us who we are today can really make a big difference in how we see the world and go about, about living. For instance, the fact that uh, just about everybody here has one of these in your hand and in your home, and it's in your language, and you're free to read it, is in many ways a result of the Reformation. The, the, the way we think about religious liberty and religious freedom and freedom of conscience is in, in great measure a result of what happened 500 years ago during the time of the Reformation. The way we think about the role of the, the government and the role of the church and some, some separation between them 
is in many ways an outgrowth of what happened during the Reformation. How we worship. The freedom to choose. Where you worship. Many ways has been shaped by the Reformation of 500 years ago. And here's the challenge that I'm faced with. And so let me just be you know, transparent with you for a moment. The Reformation was was an event, a series of events that occurred over decades involving numerous people in numerous countries. And so there's a lot of history. And my challenge is how do I present this to you without it becoming a history lesson? That's, that's the first challenge, okay? Now, for those of you who are history geeks, you would love it if I did that. But for the rest of you, you no, you don't want to do that. That's, that's what some of you are afraid I'm going to do. It's just going to be a long history lesson for the next few weeks, right? I like history, so I'm going to try to resist the temptation to, to, to camp there. Another challenge is there's just so much information. You, you could fill an entire library with books simply about the Reformation and all the characters who were part of it. In fact, because this is the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, Books are being released every week practically on Martin Luther and other figures from that era. And so how do, I, how do I pull that together in a way that's clear and makes sense and is simple? It's not just a history lesson. How do I help you understand that these issues matter for you today? That we're not just looking to the past and say, well, what happened 500 years ago? But how... Those issues still exist today, maybe with different shades, different coloring, but just as real today as they were 500 years ago, just as important and significant in our lives now as they were then. I, I started to title the series, The Reformation, Then and Now, because the issues still matter, even if we don't understand. But my challenge is, how do I make that relevant for you? And so I want to give you an image to help you understand how I'm going to do this over the next several weeks. Imagine you're standing on, on top of a mountain and you, and you have this beautiful view, a vista, you know, a, a view of the forest. That's Black Mountain, the highest peak in Kentucky. Well, imagine you're looking out at this beautiful forest made up of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of trees and so on. I want you to think of the Reformation like you're standing here and you're looking out at that forest and just see the vista. And what I'm going to do is each week just, just start painting a picture for you. Just give you a, a glimpse, a snapshot, if you will, of the Reformation, of, of one part of it. Just, just let you kind of look at the forest and just take in the, 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 the broad picture. Does that make sense? And then that beautiful scene there, I wonder how many thousands of trees are in that forest. Well, what I'm going to do is, is after I tell you a little bit about the big picture, I'm going to pick one tree and describe that one tree. One issue, one topic, one, one subject matter and talk about it so that you understand it as part of this big forest. So that's how I'm going to try to approach the teaching on the Reformation over the next few weeks. So are you ready to get started? Today's kind of an introduction. I invite you to open your Bible to the book of Matthew chapter 4, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4. 
Let's talk about the forest for just a moment. Let me give you kind of the big picture of the Protestant Reformation. The Reformation was not one event, just one moment, one, one year, one event. It wasn't that. It was a series of events involving many, many people over a period of a few decades. And actually there were things that kind of set the stage for it a century before it really started and continue until this day. But, but there's, a, there's a period primarily in the 1500s that we think of as the Protestant Reformation. And, and while there's many people who are part of it, the one man who, seen, who, who, who is really the focus of it is Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a German, born in the late 1400s, was going to school to be a lawyer when he had an encounter with God that changed his life. And he became a Catholic monk. Now, you, you need to remember that in Europe, very few expressions of the Christian faith existed other than Catholicism at that moment in history. And so Luther became a Catholic monk. He became a priest. In time, he became a, a parish pastor, if you will, a university professor, very educated. And over the years, he increasingly became bothered by what he saw as the corruption and abuse within the church. Leadership positions were sold at times to the highest bidder without regard to faith or morality, theology, or anything else. One, one expression of the corruption and the abuse that bothered him the most and sort of brought things to a head was the way indulgences were sold in the 1500s, particularly in German, Germany. One pope had started building St. Peter's Cathedral, died, and then another pope was going to finish it. And all the money was gone. There was one man who bought the position as bishop in Germany and paid a lot of money. But to get the money back, he got permission from the Pope to sell indulgences in a very aggressive manner. And what they would do is they would go to all of these towns and villages and so on throughout Germany and other places. And, and if you would make a financial donation your loved one would be released from purgatory. And they had all kinds of... One, one person in particular was really gifted at that kind of fundraising. He had a jingle that said, as soon as the coin in the copper rings, another soul from purgatory springs. And Luther was troubled by that deeply. In Scripture... He came to understand that nobody got out of purgatory. No one had sins forgiven. No one got out of hell or anything else because somebody put some money in an offering plate, if you will. But that's how most of the money to build St. Peter's. I've been there. Have you been to St. Peter's? It's beautiful. That's how it was paid for. 
And there were other abuses and expressions of corruption that bothered Luther. He really believed if the church leadership understood these abuses and this corruption, they would want to change things. They just didn't know it. And he would soon learn that he was wrong. They did know it. They were part of it. And so one day in October, 500 years ago, 500 years ago this month, he wasn't wanting to break from the church. He wanted to create a debate, a scholastic debate so that people could see the error of their ways and and fix things. He wanted to fix it from within. And so he walked about a half mile from where he was living to the church where he was the parish priest and at the university where he taught in Wittenberg. And he nailed this document to the front doors of the church. Now that wasn't unusual because the front door of that church was like a bulletin board and people would stick up, you know, they'd just nail notices to it all the time. So it wasn't unusual for that to happen. But he, 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 put, he nailed there what is in history called his 95 Thesis, 95 things he wanted to have a debate about. He wanted to have a discussion about, a scholastic debate on these issues that were, that were central to their theology and to salvation and to the abuse and to the corruption. And he thought that's what would actually happen. There'd be a debate. But he was wrong. The political authorities and the religious authorities came down on him hard in the years to come. Moments when his life was literally at risk and he expected to be executed. When his books and writings were burned in public and people ordered to burn them and people offered sums of money to turn him in. Excommunicated. Which in Catholicism means more than you're simply no longer a member of the church. It means you're condemned to hell because you're outside of, out from under the grace of God because it comes through the church to you and the church can take it from you. So here was a man who faced a lot in his life and and the 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 hymn a mighty fortress of our god he wrote in the midst of all that turmoil and struggle as an expression of his faith that god is the fortress where he finds his security what luther had done without really knowing it in the beginning was he had attacked the authority of the Pope and the authority of the church and elevated the Bible above them. Now that's part of the forest. Let's look at the tree. Okay? The tree is that issue of authority. The tree is the Scripture. What is the authority in your life? What is the authority for what you believe? What is the authority that shapes how you see the world, how you make decisions, how you go about living? What is the ultimate authority in your life? That that was at its heart, at its core, the issue Luther was dealing with and the Reformation was about. See, look, look in Matthew chapter 4 for just a moment. 
Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist. He's beginning his public ministry. And the first thing he does is go off into the wilderness to a remote area to be alone with the Heavenly Father. And in chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he fasted 40 days and nights. 40 days without anything to eat. Just him and the Father. Prayer. And at the end of the 40 days, he was hungry. Well, I would be too, wouldn't you? In verse 3, and then the tempter, Satan, came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, and by the way, Satan's favorite attack is to either make you question God or question yourself. Do you know that? Question God or question your relationship with God. Doubt in your mind. If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. You're hungry. You have the ability to do it. You're the Son of God. You can turn that rock into bread. Notice Jesus' answer in verse 4. He answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live, notice this, on bread alone, but on what? What is it, church? Read it again out loud. On every, come on, what is it? That proceeds out of the mouth of God. He's quoting the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Jesus said, more important than any physical thing in life is you feeding on, feasting on, living on the Word of God that, 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 that proceeds from His mouth. Just as I'm, I'm talking now, when God speaks, every word proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, give you a little background. This is the Bible. Most of you are holding one. Some of you have it on a smartphone or a tablet, etc. We have all these Bibles in English, different translations, right? The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. And the New Testament in Greek. And over the centuries been translated into various languages. And if you're wondering why do some of the English translations not read exactly the same, it's because when you translate, translation is not an exact science. There's decisions you make when you translate from one language to another. But for centuries, and by the way, do you, do you know when, the, when, when Gutenberg invented the printing press? The late 1400s. So before that, every book, if you will, was handwritten, hand-copied. So the masses did not have access to them. You with me? So very few people had a copy of the Bible. And for centuries, the only copies around were in Latin, the language of the old Roman Empire that had been gone for a long, long time. Average person couldn't read it. Most of the clergy couldn't read it. Only a select number of very educated people could read it and even had access to it. And the church, the Catholic Church of the Middle Ages, said that the Pope and what the church had taught through tradition over the years was the authority. And even when people started trying to translate the Bible into people's languages by hand, many times you were forbidden, it was illegal, you were persecuted, copies were burned. Because nothing was to call into question the authority of the church of that day. John Wycliffe, 
Any of you familiar with Wycliffe Bible translators? Hmm? John Wycliffe was an English scholar, preacher, if you will, who lived about 100 years before Martin Luther. He translated the entire Bible into English, handwritten copies. No printing press. He was condemned by the authorities, sentenced to be executed. Before he could be executed, he died. I can't remember if it was, I think it was of a stroke. Forty years later, the Pope ordered that his bones be dug up, burned, and the ashes thrown into the river because he was a heretic. Simply for translating the Bible into the language of the average person. Now think about that. Because there are many, many stories I could tell you about political figures, not just religious figures, but political figures who persecuted and punished people so that you could have this in your hand right now. See, here's, here's the real issue again. Well, what is the authority for what you believe? 500 years ago in the Catholic Church, it, and, 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 and the church was so tied to political authority, to government, that the government often usually enforced the church's dictates. So be, be careful when you want the church and the state to get too much in bed together because sometimes it might turn on you. The authority then was the Bible was an authority, but so was church tradition. And I, I want you to know, as I'm saying some of these things, I have in my library, I, I, I don't like reading what one group says about another group a whole lot. I like reading what one group says about themselves. So I have resources from Catholicism and other groups that I'm teaching from. And so the Bible is an authority in Catholicism, but so is the tradition of the church, the idea that the interpretation of the church leaders down through the centuries, the pope, the cardinals, the bishop, is the only accurate understanding of this. And so in that sense, that authoritative interpretation takes precedence over anything you might see in this when you read it, which means that ultimately that tradition is the authority because only that authority can properly understand and teach you what to believe. That concentration of power in the Middle Ages led, as it often does, to corruption and abuse. Martin Luther, and he, he wasn't the first one, okay? He wasn't the first one. There are others. There have been others since. The authority is not tradition, and it's not, it's not any statement by any particular group. The authority is simply this, and that every, every follower of Christ, every believer is a priest to God, him or herself, and has the privilege of reading hearing from God directly every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That this is the only authority. As Baptists, we often say the Scripture is the authority for our faith and practice, what we believe and how we live. That's why you're encouraged to bring this to church and to Sunday school and to Bible study do, do you understand why in most Baptist churches, and, and not just Baptist, but other Protestant churches, the pulpit is in the middle and it's the focal point? It's because we believe this is central to hearing the voice of God. This is the authority. Thus saith the Lord. Not thus saith some preacher. Not thus saith some church. 
not thus saith some tradition. In Matthew 4, he said, live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. One last passage I want you to look at. Turn to 2 Timothy, if you will, chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, the Bible says, all Scripture is inspired by God. The word inspired in the Greek, remember the New Testament is originally written in which language? Greek. The word that in our English Bible is translated as inspired in, in the New American Standard is, is a Greek word that's, that's really a compound of, of two words. The first word is God. The second word is to breathe. And what he's saying is that all Scripture is what? God breathed. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that what? Proceeds out of the mouth of God. All Scripture is what? God breathed. And there are other passages I could take you to to say more about that. Just don't have time this morning. But do you get the connection? Do you get the picture, the image of what it's saying? And because of that, it's profitable, beneficial, advantageous for teaching. What should you know? What should you believe? For reproof. <laughs> Stop it. Don't do that. Correction. Let's go a different way. Let's do something different. For training or instruction, I think the King James translates it. Instruction, training, and righteousness. How do you live a righteous life? How, do you, how, how are you right with God? Well, the God breathed. The words that proceed from his mouth tell you how. Because God is the one saying to you, this is how. This is the way. And again, I ask you, what is the authority in your life for what you believe and think. He continues in verse 17 saying, so that, for that, so that the man of God may be adequate, complete, completely, fully equipped for every good work, everything God wants you to do. See, people are always trying to put something above the Word of God. 500 years ago, it may have been tradition and the authority of church leaders Do you know what it is today? For most Americans and for many of us in this room and probably at moments in life for each of us in this room, the, the issue that we elevate above the Word of God as the authority in our life, you see every time you look in a mirror. How often have you heard? How often have you said or felt? When confronted with thus saith the Lord, the, the God-breathed Word, the words that proceed out of the mouth of God, the Holy Scripture. How many times have you heard or said yourself when confronted with the authority of God's Word in your life on a particular issue or a particular subject or a particular decision or a particular moment? How many times have you heard or thought or said, yeah, I know, but I think, yeah, yeah, I know the, that, that God said the Bible, but, but I, you know, I just feel, yeah, I know it says that, but, but you know, I, I wish I'd like it this, I want this. Anybody ever been there? That's our culture. The God of current American and Western civilization culture is self. 
It's, it's a different shape and color than 500 years ago, but the issue is real because Satan is always trying to get each and every one of us to question God. Larry King, you know, is, uh, he's way up there now. He was interviewed a few years ago. Now, I want you to listen to something he said in his interview. He said, I can't make that leap that a lot of people around me have made into belief, belief that there's some judge somewhere. I have a lot of respect for true people of faith. I've done so many interviews on it, and I've always searched. But if someone said, did you ever sit down and read the Bible cover to cover? The answer, and this is Larry King, the answer is no, because I don't know who wrote it. And now listen to this. I'm too in my head to be into faith. Some of us, even who are believers, are too into our own emotions and feelings, too into our natural wants and desires, too into something on the inside of us to allow what God has breathed to be the authority in our lives. And every time we do that, now hear, hear, hear me, every time we do that, on one level, we are saying, God, what I think and what I feel and what I want is truth. And what you say is a lie. And so I again ask, what is the authority for what you believe? Is it God or is it you? 